Yeah, it's like the writers were like, you get a baby, you get a baby, you get a baby. Everybody <laughs> has a baby. Um, <laughs> shout out to Alexa Vega, though. Uh, that sh- Alexa Vega plays Kylie um, of Spy Kids fame. She looks great. She looks really like she suns regularly. So good for her. this is alex and this is em welcome to the latest episode of the good the bad the basic this is the podcast for nostalgia gen x and millennials and binge watchers of all ages on this podcast we'll be discussing what we love what we hate and what was just a bit problematic about the tv and movies that we're addicted to and do a bit of rewriting where necessary for much more exclusive content Become a show producer on Patreon and get access to after-the-episode bonuses, curated playlists, movie reviews, music video retrospectives, and so much more. Join the GBB family at patreon.com forward slash goodbadbasic. We've officially begun season four of GBB, Lights, Camera, Action, focusing on series about entertainment and show business. To start things off, we'll be discussing ABC CMT's hit musical drama, Nashville. Lasting four seasons on ABC and two more on CMT, Nashville consistently defied the odds and remained a hit TV series for nearly six years. An ensemble musical drama about the lives of country music artists, Nashville was overflowing with great original music and a strong cast of actors to sell the story. But what was it about this series in particular that allowed it to survive and thrive despite generally low ratings and even a cancellation? Stay Stay tuned. All right, everyone. So some critical information about Nashville. It is a drama and a musical drama, as we covered, and an ensemble drama at that. Um, Nashville was created by Callie Corey, and it aired from October 10th of 2010 until July 26, 2018, with a cancellation from ABC Wedge in between there. It lasted for six seasons and 124 episodes. The show stars Connie Britton as Raina James, Hayden Panettiere as Juliet Barnes, Charles Esten as Deacon Claiborne, Jonathan Jackson as Avery Barclay, Claire Bowen as Scarlett O'Connor, Sam Palladio as Gunnar Scott, Robert Wisdom as Coleman Carlisle, Chris Carmack as Will Lexington, Lennon Stella as Maddie Conrad, and Maisie Stella as Daphne Conrad, with a host of other supporting, recurring, and auxiliary characters. So let's jump right into season one of Nashville. It was 22 episodes long, which is a pretty great season order and pretty standard for ABC. Nashville, as far as 
my memory allows me to know is the only musical drama they've ever even had on that network, which is very well known for law procedurals, cop procedurals, and medical procedurals. So what do we think of Nashville? Right. So Nashville is like a, an interesting cultural artifact. Um, like you said, it's done by Callie Curry, uh, who essentially took the Shonda Rhimes route in that Kelly Curry very famously wrote Thelma and Louise, Something to Talk About, and Divine Secrets of the Yaya Sisterhood. Um, and Nashville was her first TV joint. Um, and that sort of, and that was Shonda Rhimes' route as well. And uh, Shonda Rhimes had written like Crossroads and had done some other features and Grey's Anatomy was Shonda's first TV joint. So looking at season one is interesting. Um, Mostly because season one is not that good. Uh, it's it's very uneven. Um, I think it definitely exists off the strength of the uh, like the cast, and um, I think around that time, country like showbiz dramas were coming back, but uh, particularly like music industry dramas, um, because I think I think a year a couple years before. You have Country Strong, that Gwyneth Paltrow movie with Garrett Hedlund and Leighton Meester. But it's in the cultural consciousness, so I guess. Some, so something around, I guess, going around in Hollywood was like, yeah, this this is what we want to do. Um, but yeah, I was kind of surprised. I was like, yeah, this isn't that good. Yeah, so I was surprised, but I wasn't surprised. You guys know I always have a theory. <laughs> so I have a theory about why the show managed to last four seasons on ABC, even though, like Alex said, the first season is not that good. Like, there's there are a lot of good, like, the basic premises are good, but the execution within the writing is really like, what the fuck? And my theory is a couple things showbiz dramas were back in fashion like alex said but specifically a network like abc had never had a showbiz drama before or at least not in at least 15 years because i hadn't seen one on that network and most people that watch abc don't watch abc for entertainment dramas so when you have a show like this on ABC and these people are unfamiliar with what an entertainment drama is supposed to look like, they'll take pretty much anything. I think my personal sort of speculative theory is definitely like that there was a miscommunication in the writer's room about like what they wanted this show to be. Um, because I think that's one of the prevailing things that I feel throughout the narrative when I'm watching it. I'm just like, it feels like they don't even really know what they want because there are all these plots that like don't, that I don't care about, like that they keep pushing because I, because I don't, and I assume they're only pushing it because somebody is like, this isn't just a drama about like a country singer. It's about like, you know, the politics and like the city and it's like nobody gives a shit like just make this (laughs) make this showbiz drama like let it be about the music industry that's fine that that's that's what that's what's interesting about it yeah but but I guess they didn't they weren't feeling that too too deep 
Yeah, um, I agree. And, you know, Alex and I have had private discussions about this. And one of the first things I said about Nashville was that I really strongly believe that um, what happened in the writer's room was that everyone was trying to tell their story and not a story, like a cohesive story. There were there was a lot of though you can see the obvious friction within the writer's room and among the showrunners of which the show had several at once. Um, if you have tuned into our, um, our first episode of our on the lot series, if you're a patron, we spoke with Kathleen McGee Anderson of Lincoln Heights. And she says something that people who are, you know, pretty interested in behind the scenes work of television already know, which is that the showrunner tells a story. But if you've got three or four showrunners already from jump, what story are you telling exactly? This is why my theory that the show was only successful because, um, ABC viewers really didn't know how an entertainment drama should be run, um, stands. Um, there's no way that a courtroom procedural, or a medical procedural, which that network is known for, would have been able to get away with the writing that Nashville got away with. So the show opens with 8.93 million viewers, which sounds like a lot, but isn't a lot, um, especially, again, for a network like ABC, which is it's like a home for really serious dramas, right? The show does a lot of cool things, like, for instance... Um, all of season one, every episode except for the pilot episode is named after a Hank Williams song. It's cute. The overall premise is cute. We have Raina James, who is a country singer who's past her prime, and she feels the the brunt of age and being replaced by a young up-and-coming sort of country pop singer named Juliet Barnes. Raina's got this drama with her ex, Deacon Claiborne, um, who is a country musician, a touring musician, and a songwriter, as well as an alcoholic, which is why they broke up. And Julia is trying to, you know, move past her past um, with her mother, who is a substance abuser and an alcoholic as well. Um, so these are like our primary um, female protagonists and like the the other the other um, main characters kind of explode in. We meet Deacon's niece, Scarlett, and we um, meet her boyfriend at the time, Avery, who's like, you know, trying to be a rock star. And she's a waitress in a cafe trying to find her passion and her calling. And all of these premises are great on paper, but what the show does with them in season one, it's a lot and it's, and it's not all good. Right. The show burns through story super quickly um, and not for like the better. And like, I mean, one thing that the show does really well, I think, in it, in establishing these people is that like all the people are I think you can recognize everyone like, um, you know, Connie Britton uh, is definitely playing this sort of like Faith Hill type, which like Faith Hill, Shania Twain type. Uh, Juliet is in this sort of Taylor Swift, Carrie Underwood type. Um, uh, like oh, every, was, like. Go ahead. <laughs> I was going to, I was going to shout out my friend Kiana when I said that, cause that was, that was like her brainchild. Well, um, I didn't, well, so to your friend Kiana's point, like, um, 
I didn't I didn't see that like Gunner and what's his face were like the Civil Wars, um, which is so. And I guess the Gunner and Scarlet are supposed to be ciphers for the Civil Wars. But I did. But like the the Juliet being like, um, and I didn't peg Juliet as like Carrie Underwood, but like uh, Connie Britton being like a Faith Hill Shania Twain type was like was obvious from Jump to be to be, and so was. Um, uh, uh, so that like definitely comes at least that one like I think is is comes through. So does like the Juliet um, being like um uh like 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 I said. Well, I thought Taylor Swift um, and then Layla Grant later feels like Kelly Pickler, um, uh, and Luke Wheeler feels like uh, like a Kenny Chesney. Tim McGraw hybrid, um, uh, and and yeah, uh, I was like, "Who's Will?" I was like, "I'm not sure." Did you have a theory for Will? Yeah, there's actually a gay country singer who who put out a record of um, basically like a coming out record, um, and he. Um, <laughs> His 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 song kind of um, his song kind of flopped because it was basically about being into uh, another guy. So hold on, let me find his name because I, I I just remember the one single. Um, country music pretty much buried him very quickly. So my friend Kiana was watching this. She is a big country music fan like I am. And when I watch a show, I just watch the show. But she hadn't watched the show when it aired. And she only watched it recently because I told her we were going to be reviewing the show. And she was like, okay, so Raina is Faith Hill. Like, um, Deacon is Tim McGraw. Um, Luke is like uh, um, a Garth Brooks um uh, Layla is like probably like a young Taylor Swift slash Kelly Pickler, um, and Gunner and Scarlet are the Civil Wars and Avery. Um, Avery is an interesting one because she didn't. I don't think she had a cipher for for Avery, um, but Avery for me is like literally every major producer in country music. Um, they almost all of them have a background in rock music and Avery is in a rock band when the, the show opens and all of them have like a great sound for modern country artists. So, um, the way that the show plays with these characters, especially aesthetically making them really resemble these country music stars and the way that they dress and in the way that they, their music sounds is really, really great. Nashville doesn't hit a false note when it comes to the music, but the writing of these characters in our lives is a lot. <laughs> anyway, but season one of Nashville is like, um, is interesting. Uh, so once again, uh, Nashville has done something that like I hate, which is that they make the actors actually sing. And for Hayden Panettiere, it's not a problem because Hayden Panettiere was like a Disney girl and, you know, that's part of her joint. And Jonathan Jackson also does like a really good job. And, and the people who play um, Deacon, Scarlett, and Gunnar also all had sort of previous backgrounds in music. But like they should have hired a voice double for Connie Britton. They like I don't know how how that didn't happen is like is like kind of blows my mind because 
like, so in the first, in either the pilot or the second episode, they make a comment that, like, Juliet can't sing. That's Hayden Panettiere's character. But she clearly can. And they, and they're coding, like, um, Raina as, like, like I said, they code Raina as, like, this huge sort of domineering figure. But, like, Connie Britton can't, is the real one who can't sing. And, like, I guess as the audience, we're just supposed to, like, go with it. But I'm like, no, like, you should have hired this woman voice double. And it's clear that – and then it's also clear that Connie Britton doesn't want to sing. Because then by second season, she's really not singing anymore. <laughs> like, she's stopped. Like, Julie, like, Hayden Panettiere and the rest of the cast are the ones that are doing the heavy lifting with all these songs and stuff. Right. Um, I thought that was interesting, too, because while um, I absolutely think that um, Kiana was right, that she looks like a Faith Hill and she's supposed to be a Faith Hill, Connie Britton sounds like a low-budget Jodie Messina. Um, like Jody Messina, if Jody Messina wasn't was not as strong of a vocalist, like there are a lot of similarities in the tone of their voice. But Connie Britton is not a stronger singer than Hayden Panettiere. Um, I don't know why they wrote that after hearing them sing. I don't know why they wrote that after hearing literally everyone else in the cast out sing Connie Britton. And I feel like they should have gotten themselves. Um, an actor with like kind of like a a stage training like a Sutton Foster from younger who can sing. Right. Um yeah, because it's obvious. It's obvious and and you're supposed to and I'm and and like I said, like the show like says it a bunch of times and they they all the show like rattles off like um how many CMAs she's won and like how many albums sold. So you're so you just you're just going with it. But like it's definitely like a big suspension, like suspension of like belief. Like it was up there for me. Right. Because when we talk about a Faith Hill or a Shania Twain, they're not just pretty faces. They can sing, sing. And that's another thing about country music. You're not going to make it as a vocalist in country music if you can't sing. And that's across the gender lines. Um, there's, I don't, I, I personally don't think that Arena would have been successful as a singer in country music because she's not that great of a singer and her voice doesn't have a very distinct personality like, say, a Dolly Parton. Luckily, the writers, the songwriters on the show know not to give her anything that is truly challenging vocally to sing. Like, Raina's songs are very simple to sing. Right. But even then, like, I just... Wrong song is, like, um, is a pretty... Like... It's a pretty, it's not like challenging, challenging, but it is like needed to, it does need to be sung by um, somebody who can sing. Listen, Hollywood. I mean, didn't Juliet carry that song though? I mean, that's true. She had Hayden Panettiere carried the song. But um, listen, Hollywood, uh, listen, I, I see a lot of viewers, like we have a lot of listeners in LA. Um, so I know like some of you are probably industry types. Like just hire the voice double. <laughs> like, just do it. Like, stop this. Like, it's dumb. Right. Seriously. Or just, like, get get yourself a Broadway actress, because who's waiting for her big break, right? Because if it's a musical drama, um, getting actors who sing is not always going to be your ticket. Like, sometimes you need a singer who acts. Right. And that's fine. We're, we're okay with that. But, like, these elements have to work. Um. So then... So then another thing that is sort of really sticky about this first season is that it feels like 
people like these characters are written and then all the wrong people were like not all the wrong people but like people who did and then people were cast but they didn't quite fit the role that they were that they didn't quite fit the role that they were cast for like and so what i mean by this is that we have like so moving on to like deacon claiborne who's played by charles Eston, who you will remember as Ray from Big Love. <laughs> um, so Deacon is um, Raina's sort of like on again, off again, on again, off again, like relationship. And he, it's clear that like, particularly in the pilot and not even in the pilot, but in like the couple, I think first couple five episodes, he's supposed to be someone who is, is good natured. Yes. But is also like, um, kind of sleazy because like he does do like a couple of things that are like slightly like, Ooh, the main thing that I can think about is that uh, he has sex with Juliet when she's like at a really vulnerable place. (laughs) Um, When she really just like needs a friend. Um, And he, and that's what's, and what particularly makes it sleazy is that like, he knows she needs a friend. Um, It's very, it's very clear. He sleeps with her anyway. Charles Esten is not somebody who does like sleaze well or like that, you know, that kind of like, uh, I think just kind of dirty quality. That's not like his bag. His bag is like earnestness and like, he knows how to be like super earnest and like super good and like, um, super like broken, uh, in terms of just like emotional turmoil, he knows how to do all of that, but like that sort of dirty quality, like um, does not come through, and it's but it's present in the in the first like couple of episodes, and I think that and it's the same sort of situation with Avery. I think Avery was written to be like a real like asshole, but Jonathan Jackson does not do like real asshole well. Like he, I mean, he does it and like we, and I think as a viewer, you definitely take away that like he's shitty for being unsupportive, but, um, all those sort of like really sort of nasty, like super hyper ambitious, uh, edgy qualities of, of Avery's character is lost. I think all that stuff is lost by, I think mid season one. There was an interview on Vulture with a writer, a co-creator of the show that that said exactly that. Because um, I was like, I don't, I don't pull that from any from nowhere. Um, that yeah, that talks about Avery was supposed to be an asshole, but they let up because Jonathan Jackson was so nice. Um, so yeah, so like that's what I'm saying. So they had these ideas of like how these characters were supposed to be, but then they, like I said, it was it's it's slightly miscast um, because then so now you like the actor or like the actor is nice or the actor doesn't do this like asshole-ish thing super well. So now you have to then do something to make this new part work, which, yeah, like I said, like, I mean, it's felt, honestly, I feel it. Um, And I wouldn't be surprised if that was also the case with Charles Esten. Um, yeah, I wouldn't be surprised either. Um, like I said, there's too many there's too many people behind the helm here, and I really thought think that everybody wanted their quote unquote vision 
um, despite the, the, who was cast and what they can bring to the table. I think the, that the characters who are cast the best is, you know, the first casting Sam Palladio as, um, Gunnar Scott, Hayden Panettiere as Juliet Barnes and Eric Close, who plays, um, Teddy Conrad, Reina's husband. I think these are the best castings on the show. The show burns through a lot of story, but then they, but then they leave all these loose ends or like things just sort of end and they're not, they're not necessarily like resolved. They're just over. Season one is like mostly consumed by, I think the rivalry between Juliet and Raina. And Raina's label, um, actually asks her to open for Juliet, which is a big insult when you're as um, popular and successful as Reyna is. And this is when the real clash starts. Juliet's star is rising, but she feels threatened by Reyna's long-term success and respect within the industry. And Reyna has all those things, but she's threatened by Juliet's um, rising star in youth I guess, in an industry that values these types of things. They both have their own personal issues and they seem to bring out the worst in each other for most of season one, a, a situation which is exacerbated by Deacon, who wants to be with Raina, who he hasn't been with in about 13 years when she left him to marry her husband, Teddy Conrad. And because he can't have Raina, he sleeps with Juliet. Right. So Juliet already has an album out. Um, she, it's a hit record, uh, because that's, and this is, and listen, this will be part of the first of like the many inconsistencies on this show. Um, Julia already has an album out. It's a hit record. It's doing numbers because then she, cause that's like what the fight is about that. Like Juliet has like made all this money for the label already. Um, and they're like making her. Um, and because of, like, her bad behavior, they're making her tour with Reyna. Yeah, so something interesting about Juliet is that from the beginning, they code Juliet as somebody who uses her body and, like, uses her sexuality and, like, sleeps with men to get what she wants. Um, that's part of, like, you know, she is, like, a smart girl within and of herself, but that's definitely something that's heavy in her arsenal that she uses. She likes Deacon, yes, um, but she's also, she's, She's annoyed that, like, this thing that was has always been, like, sort of surefire for her in terms of, like, sleeping with men is, like, backfiring now. Because in the pilot, when she's recording, we sort of, the show alludes to the fact that she's, like, sleeping with her engineer. He's either the engineer or, like, the producer. Uh, and that's sort of how she even got into the door of this sort of like music industry um, because everyone's like insulting her singing talent. It's, it's interesting that they go with this, um, that this is like part of her character, mostly because um, I think we've talked about this just of like portrayals of women who like use that, use that to their advantage, what that means, like in a larger context and how that comes off, like for the audience, uh, and, like, what the audience takes away from that. But that part of her personality definitely works to um, villainize her, which is sort of lame. Yeah, it, it doesn't work with Deacon. He he initially turns her down even after she sleeps with him. 
and only later agrees to tour with, with her after Reyna, like, breaks his heart for the umpteenth time. But Juliet really didn't have an image issue when the the tour was first announced or when they were thinking about the tour, but she quickly racks one up with shoplifting that gets caught on video and goes viral. She does, she does another thing that like kind of villainizes her. She proposes to this Christian NFL player named Sean, who's basic, who's clearly a cipher for Tim Tebow to repair her image gets the marriage is like quickly annulled and she's basically just like running through people particularly men to fix her problems to help her out or to clean up her messes which doesn't do much for the character but i feel like hayden Panettiere plays juliet with such a vulnerability even when juliet is on her worst behavior it gives the character a sort of magneticism that is hard to look away from Right. So I would actually say the football player one is um, funny enough is like the first plot that comes to like really humanize Julia, actually, because so you have this like Tim Tebow cipher, Sean. First of all, the actor who plays fake Tim Tebow is way hotter than in real life (laughs) Tim Tebow. Um, And he doesn't like say dumb shit like in real life Tim Tebow does. Um, (laughs) Thank God for small mercies. But he's probably the first man in in Juliet's life that is just genuinely interested in her and who she is. He's not particularly trying to get anything from her. He's super sweet. Like, he's very sweet. He's very earnest. And it shocks Juliet, right? He's like, I just, I really, truly, honestly just want to know you. I want to be, like, you know, your boyfriend and do all that comes with that. And I mean, it's Juliet, so like she self, she just destroys it. It's one of the first probably storylines that like really humanizes her because she's very taken with him. She's into it. She's into him. Um, she marries him really so that like she can fuck him because he won't fuck her uh, until she does because he's wait he's saving himself for marriage. And even in all of that that they do, I think she also marries him because you know he's good. He is sort of the complete opposite of her. Like, you know, he comes from a good family. Like, he goes to church on Sundays. Like, he hangs out with his little sister for fun. Like, he and his family represent, like, all the things that she's starved for and that she really wants. When they do get married and his family is like, you did what? Um, He defends, he defends Juliet to his family. Like, he's really like, no, like, this is for real, like her, and she's overwhelmed by all the nice things. And, you know, Juliet, she just, she doesn't like, you know, her boy's good, unfortunately. Yeah, I think the Juliet character is actually a character that, um, from a psychological standpoint, is the best written character on the show because there is a method or a legitimate reason behind all of her madness. She is someone who grew up with a parent who was a substance abuser and whom we find out in later seasons allowed her to be abused and her behavior patterns are are spot on with someone who has never healed from that sort of trauma um you know using her body to get what she wants um being attracted to but not being able to sustain relationships with people who are good for her but 
you know, constantly falling in ba bad patterns with people who are bad for her or people who treat her like garbage, um, wanting to assert authority and dominance over all situations, um, you know, feeling insecure about her competence as a parent later on when she has a child. All of these things are pretty spot on with whom her character is supposed to be and her character's backstory. Um, and writing Juliet is pretty much the only time where I see any cohesion in the, the stories and um, the character arcs on this show. Right. Definitely. And I agree with that. Like she's Juliet's definitely, um, I think the most cohesive drawn character in the series. Let's talk a bit, bit about Gunnar and Scarlet and Avery and like this whole banana nuts drama. So, uh, Scarlet is, um, Deacon's niece and she is somebody who moved to Nashville to just be with her boyfriend, support her boyfriend, because Avery was moving to Nashville. And she's working at the Bluebird Cafe, which is once, which also that's super cool that they have the Bluebird Cafe in this show. Because uh, <clears throat> it's like, it's very famous. Like everyone plays there. People, even famous people still play there. She's working at the Bluebird. She's, and she's just sort of hanging out. And she meets uh, Gunner, who is a songwriter trying to to break in as well and from the jump gunner is like oh you're you're really talented like lyricist let's try running like writing songs together and she takes to it immediately she falls headfirst into this industry uh that her boyfriend is trying so hard to break into and she just sort of steps in with like a hop and a skip and a jump which he doesn't take well Scarlet's definitely, like, this sort of continuing archetype of, like, this, you know, sort of helpless, oh, I just came off the truck from, you know, podunk nowhere, and I won and I wasn't really thinking about being a star, but, ah, uh, I guess I am a star, which in another context would annoy, annoy me, but, but because I think you have this direct contrast of Scarlet in Juliet, who is you know, come hell or high water, like I'm going to be doing this, uh, doesn't bother me. Mm. Um, Scarlet is such an interesting character for me because while Scarlet is very talented and Claire Bowen, who plays Scarlet, is a very great singer, I never really felt like her character had much of a personality. Really couldn't understand what Avery or Gunner saw in her, like, as a person. And I just remember watching, like, by season six, I was exhausted with the writer's many attempts to give her a personality. And I was like, on oh, God, sis, if I was in that writer's room, we would get you a personality. Um, <laughs> <laughs> like, yeah, she's just, it's a lot. Um, so Avery's in a rock band when they come to Nashville. And he is initially unsupportive of Scarlet, but he very quickly comes around and then he realizes the great chemistry that exists between her and Gunner. And like his haunches are up again because their chemistry, like 
Stevie Wonder could see that shit. Um, <laughs> and he understands what's going on here. When you have chemistry like that with somebody and you're spending a lot of time with them and y'all writing love songs together, it's only a matter of time before you get together. Um, but he sabotages a relationship of his own accord and Scarlett breaks up with him and quickly hops into bed with Gunner. Um, the uh, Scarlett's romances are actually much more interesting than Scarlett herself. She's a pretty uninteresting character. And I even remember zoning out in scenes where Scarlett is shown alone. Um, yeah, she's just a super boring character. Sorry, and, guys. Yeah, and and to be honest, even when Scarlett breaks up with Avery, like, I don't, I don't know that I understand it. <laughs> like, so... Avery is someone who is extremely ambitious. Like, like we said, he was the one that convinced her. Like, she moved with him because he was like, I'm going to make it. Um, and he's been working, trying to crack, trying to break in. And obviously there, there's, like, tension between them because, like, you know, she is, she does get the publishing deal. She gets the publishing deal. She gets the attention from, like, the, you know, award-winning label, like, producer label head person she does she gets all these things very quickly to Avery's credit at least he understands he, he understands very quickly that like that can be used to his advantage which he does very quickly <laughs> he uses it to his advantage advantage and he tries to there's that ongoing tension between them but the straw that breaks the camel's back is that Avery has plays a show at like this this venue that you know he and his band are used to playing and there's a guy that comes in who's in charge of finding like the sort of local talent that will open for the Lumineers. And he likes the band. He's like, you guys are great. You sound great. This is great. But he doesn't want to book them because nobody else has heard of them, which is dumb, but okay, that's fine. And this is probably one of the more interesting plots. So then there's a, a woman, a manager woman, but she's, I don't know her name. She's an older woman. Her name is, it starts with an M, I think. I want to say Marie. I don't think that's right. Um, but this older manager woman is known for sort of like picking out talented young guys and then like sleeping with all of them. That's like the, that's like the trade-off is that like you sleep with her and then she like helps your career. Avery goes to, to, goes to like the woman's house knowing that like this is sort of what's expected of him. And he's about to go through with it, but then he he can't go through with it. Like, he's like, oh, I can't I have a girlfriend. And she's like, and, you know, she does the whole, okay, well, I guess you, you're not going to, I'm not going to manage you. And he, he does come clean with Scarlett. And then that's what Scarlett goes up about and breaks up with him over. <laughs> the fact that he didn't sleep with the manager. <laughs> no, Scarlett broke up with him so she could fuck Gunner without the guilt. <laughs> I don't. I don't care what she told herself. That's what happened. Because <laughs> I. I mean. I mean. I guess. Because like. I mean. Because that was like my big thing. I'm like, wait, you're mad because he didn't sleep with this like Scarlet. Like what? <laughs> we breaking up with folks for not cheating now. Come on, sis. <laughs> I was like, come on. Just say you want to like do Gunner and go. Like that's fine. That's legitimate. But she's like, I think the bed was still warm when by the time she fucked got around to fucking Gunner, like like there was the 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 breakup with with Avery hadn't even cooled off yet, right? Because because then she does fuck Gunner and then she feels bad 
And then she goes back to Avery, but Avery, but like by then, you know, she's like, she's told Avery that they're over. So Avery's like, well, my career is on the line. So like, you know, Avery does what he needs. Avery does like, does the sketchy thing. And he has, he wholesale has sex with that manager lady. And then Scarlett comes back and sees it. And she, and that's when Scarlett is for real, for real, like, oh, (laughs) nope, finished. And Avery even tries to say like, no, we were broken up. Like, if you want to get back together, I want to get back together. But like, we were broken up when I did this. And she's like, no, you're like gross and like blah, blah. And I'm like, oh, honey, like what was the point of any, all of this then? I mean, that's another thing about Scarlett is Scarlett is always depicted as someone who is both deeply confused and a highly critical and judgmental. And what I mean by this is even when Scarlett has like things handed to her on a silver platter. She's like, well, I still don't know what I'm supposed to do. I still don't know what my passion is. And the babe in the woods act gets old real fucking quick. Breaking up with, um, with Avery essentially for not cheating and being honest with her about what he had planned to do fucking gunner and then telling avery she can't take him back because he fucks someone to advance his career as if she's so much better for fucking the very guy that he was threatened by when they were together in the first place right i'm just like honey that doesn't make any sense (laughs) like says she was she was deeply annoying like she was annoying at worst and like really boring right so so then another person that comes in in season one is Liam McGinnis. Oh, Liam McGinnis, he will never die. Right, just people that shouldn't have been here. Um, and this is when we talk about the story, like, burns through so much. Uh, the, the show burns through so much so quickly. So we, ha- we get Liam McGinnis, who is this rock producer. Like, he's known for, like, like hardcore rock and, like, alt-rock, um, respected in, like, that sort of genre. And Raina wants him to produce the, her record. She's getting pushed back from the label. But, like, you know, this is also sort of, like, the, you know, he, Liam is, like, younger than her. And he's, quote-unquote, edgy and dangerous in that way that, like, I guess in that sort of archetypal Hollywood way that rock stars are, like, edgy and dangerous. He does produce Raina's record. But, like, also, he has sex with her at the same time. Which, shout out to that multitasking, I guess, in a sense. Yeah, it should be noted by the at this point, Raina and her husband Teddy are separated and going through divorce proceedings. So she's not exactly cheating on Teddy, but she's not really trying to be with Liam either. She's just with him because she can't be with Deacon at the moment. Um, this is something these two do quite a lot, use other people to substitute for um, the person they really want to be with, which is like each other. But Liam is a character that really, like, pretty much overstayed his welcome from the moment he was introduced on the show. Right. Like, why are you here? Why are you here? And he's played by, like, uh, Michelle, um, who, oh my gosh, I cannot say any of these people's names. I feel, I'm really proud of myself that I mispronounce white people's names with the same frequency, with probably a greater frequency than I mispronounce, like, people of color's names. I feel like that's very anti-racist of me. Um, uh, so Mich- Michelle Huseman. I don't know if that's right. Uh, I hope it is. Um, cause it's spelled like M I C H I E L, but it's Dutch. It's not French. 
Yeah, I don't know how the first name is pronounced. I know the last name is, you said it correctly, but I don't know how the first name is pronounced at all. Um, yeah, Google it, because he's literally the only actor with that name. <laughs> yeah. Um, I do know that he was, like, a hot property at the time. Like, that actor had his, like, break um, that this, this same year, because, like, he's on this. But then, like, and I think what happened is, like, he just double booked himself for, like, a bunch of jobs. Um, cause he was on this, he was on Game of Thrones. Um, and then he was on, uh, he was in Age of Adeline and he was, um, in the invitation, like all like in that time period. He was like, and, and then he, but he, and then he was also on Orphan Black. So he was doing a lot of stuff. And I think what happened is like, they double booked him. He, he just like accepted all these jobs, but then like the schedules weren't straight. So then like, he basically was like, you know, I would be on your show, but I got to leave. And then like, he would finish a job, but then come back and be like, Oh, Hey, you're like, you know, girl, like I wrapped up that other thing. Can I be back? And then people would just sort of like work it. But, um, yeah, he should have just, I don't know. They should have did his story and then bounced. It's a lot. Um, uh, but yeah, he they kept trying to make him work, which was annoying. Yeah, they kept trying to work with him, which is super annoying. Um, and then uh, some other people that are interested. And then, like, there's, like, a lot of... And then Will Lexington is probably our, our last, like, main, main character that's introduced in, like, the first season. Right. In the first season, we meet Raina, Juliet, Deacon, Teddy, Scarlett, Gunner, Avery and Will. Will comes in like the like the almost around the time the season's ready to close. But these are the people, with the exception of Teddy, who gets reduced to a recurring character. These are the people that are going to be in our main cast, um, you know, through season five at least, um, if not through the very end. Um, I want to talk really, really quickly on this whole subplot in season one with Juliet and Dante. Honestly, I felt they moved way too fast with Juliet. And like the thing with her mom and the rehab sponsor should have been drawn out. But basically Juliet's mom, Jolene gets out of rehab and her sponsor who might also be her boyfriend. Um, that's never clarified. He charms Juliet and quickly becomes her manager much to Jolene and Deacon's displeasure. And then they end up having sex. Dante secretly records the whole thing and then blackmails Juliet for $10 million. Right, which she pays. Or she was getting ready to pay. She's getting ready to pay, like, very easily. But Juliet's mom decides to bite the bullet and actually do her daughter, like, one big last major solid. And she basically... Um, goes to meet up with Dante instead, like, you know, unbeknownst to Juliet, telling him that she has the money. And then she kills him and overdoses, killing herself, um, basically to protect her daughter from this humiliation because she understands that the money is not the end of it. He's going to keep asking for more money and there's no guarantee that he won't release this tape, which would ruin her career in country music. So when Juliet should be celebrating her CMA for Best Female Vocalist of the Year, she is instead mourning her mother and that whole sequence was heartbreaking to watch Hayden Panettiere does grief really beautifully she does um and that whole plot was first of all that whole plot was like felt season two-ish and it felt yes. a bit <laughs> silly 
But um, I went with it. Um, and but I went with it. Uh, so the season, so the season ends. Season one ends um, with a, a huge, you know, turn cliffhanger thing, in where we, the audience, find out that um, Maddie. Reina's oldest daughter is also Deacon's biological daughter. It's significant because the whole time, like since Maddie's birth, like Reina's been telling everybody that it's it's Teddy's. That yeah, that Maddie was Teddy's, and the only people who knew the truth was like Reina and Teddy. Right. And it it ends with that big twist and her and Deacon getting into like a a huge fight about it and and Deacon relapsing because Deacon is an alcoholic. Reina is like driving a car and there's this like huge car accident. So something about the Maddie plot is like even that plot as well, like the Maddie is like really Deacon's baby thing, feels like something that should have been stretched out for at least two seasons. <laughs> even this big like car accident thing that happens does not feel like it feels way too soon. Yeah, so that's actually, for me, what's wrong with season one. With the exception of Liam, the story actually flows really well, but they move too quickly. Y'all went to the TVD school of writing, and it's not okay. Yeah, <laughs> um, like, they just burned through so much story so quick. So this is how I would have made season one better. Season one would have ended with Juliet and Sean, the football player, getting married, either... Maddie or her younger sister, Daphne, not Deacon, realizing that Maddie is Deacon's daughter. That's how that season would have ended. Like, you could have stretched it out a little bit further to Maddie and then later Deacon realizing that he's a father. The Juliet sex tape and her and her mother, Jolene, dying, that also could have all been in season two or even the beginning of season three. This is so much for the first season. The way they were writing this season was like they didn't think they would get another one. <laughs> I don't even... I think it's just uneven. Um, I think that pacing is weird because particularly like when we get to season two... There are a bunch of stuff in season two plots that are kicking off in season two that feel like they should have been in season one, which we'll get into. Uh, for example, um, season two, there's this whole plot about Raina being like really conflicted that like she's having to spend so much time like away from her girls to be on the road and be successful. That shit feels like it belongs in season one. Like that, like, I don't know why the hell that's happening in season two. Right. <laughs> like it's just, it's that. And it's a bunch of other things, but, um, season one, good, bad or basic. Um, just because I fucking love the music on the show, I will give it a good, like it's on the low side of good. <laughs> you know, I think I'm giving season one, a basic. Uh, I don't think even the music saves it for me. I mean, that's fair. That's that's valid because the pacing really is odd. Um, at this point in season two, um, um, you know, for instance, where we're we're dealing with all of these things that are happening in Reina's life, um, I I do feel like that whole plot of I need more time with my girls shouldn't have even been like a season one plot. It should have just been something that is presented as a daily part of her life because you've been touring and on the road for decades now. Why is it just now a problem? Your kids are like 
13 and 11, 10 years old. It should have just been like one of one of the many things about Raina's character is that she's constantly feeling guilt about not being home more. Um, Gunner had proposed to Scarlett at the end of season one, and she turns down his proposal in the opening of season two. She moves out, Will moves in, and her childhood bestie, Zoe, who had literally never been mentioned before now, um, comes to Nashville trying to be a singer and, you know, um, auditioning for or backup singer gigs. And then later, Avery, Zoe, and Gunner begin writing songs together and form a band. And Gunner and Zoe start dating, which Scarlett cannot handle because she never knows what she wants. Yeah. Also, season two marks like Raina starting this Highway 65 record label that she's really dedicated to. Like, this is like her her new joint. Scarlett isn't cool with Zoe um, dating them at first, but she comes around because, I mean, I don't know, there's really nothing else for her to sort of... Uh, be on but um i mean i guess shout out to them finding a black person to be on this show or like a a person who is like visibly of color um because it felt like they were trying to in season one they they do like i think make a good faith effort to have like black people but i don't know they all mysteriously disappear like why clef jean is on is is in season one he never comes back ever again like coleman doesn't reappear Oh, and then Juliet's first assistant, mysterious, who is, like, a black woman, mysteriously disappears and is replaced by, like, a white girl. So, shout out to Zoe. You survived. Friend, actress, girl, whoever you are. Season two is, like, also, I think, when we start to see, like, the real sort of discombobulation in terms of, like, I think the show, like, not remembering the plots that it did or and not, like having an idea of, like, what to do next, um, and then it just doing weird stuff. So, like, there's, like, a plot in season two where, like, Rolling Stone wants to have, like, Juliet on the cover, and she's, she's like, super, super excited because she's like, oh, my God, like, this is such a big deal. Um, I can't believe it. But I'm like, you have a private jet? You have one, like, to, like, to your disposal? Like, you own it? You were also ready to easily pay someone $10 million uh, in blackmail money. I feel like if you're working and earning at that level, you've been on the cover of Rolling Stone at least a couple of times. So that didn't make sense to me. They, they continue with like this Teddy plot that like, I don't, I don't care about. And then also like Juliet starts like having sex with like a British Lord. And apparently they play like, like polo. Like, you know, with the horses and the sticks, like in Nashville. Like, is that even like a real thing? Like in Nashville, Tennessee, for people to like play polo? I don't really know. Because um, it I doesn't feel like one. <laughs> so um, some of the other plots in season two that I want to um, jump into is that while Raina's creating this record label of Highway 65, Edge Hill, her former label, has a new CEO, Jeff Fordham. And um, Jeff Fordham becomes like a major antagonist for many of these seasons. Um, Jeff Fordham is played by Oliver Hudson, and he actually, unlike Jonathan um, Jackson, can play an asshole very well. Um, so that's really cool because Jeff Fordham gets tied up into everybody's plots. Raina, Juliet, Will, and Layla. 
Um, we meet the Layla character this season, and because Will starts dating her um, in an effort to bury his secret um, that he's gay even further, Will has a pretty decent character arc on Nashville too. I'm not going to lie, but for, um, I want to say the first half of about the first three seasons, Will is a difficult character to watch because he has a lot of pain and a lot of shame, um, concerning the fact that he's gay and the fact that he has to be in the closet. Um, and an upbringing that told him that it was wrong. So, um, he's a great character. He's kind. Of, he is another character who, like the Juliet character, feels a lot of shame, and I think is written a lot of written very well and portrayed really well by Chris Carmack, who you might remember as Luke on the OC, um, who is um, surpri- was surprisingly enough a very good singer. Um, that they, um, I think, Will and Luke's storylines in season to me, Will and. Juliet's storylines in season two were my favorite um, because we kind of got to see these people go off the rails for a little bit. Juliet starts dating Avery and that quickly goes off the rails when she cheats on him with Jeff, whom she hates, you know, had sex with anyway, I guess as a means of punishing herself because she she was was, was in a vulnerable moment and felt down. Their relationship ends over this cheating the, the storylines here in season two are really great, but one storyline that I felt absolutely did not belong here was Luke and Raina. Luke, a man from Raina's past whom she chose Deacon over, comes back into her life in this season. They start dating and he proposes all in season two. It's a lot, you guys. You could have stretched that out. You mean like Luke Wheeler, right? Yeah. Yeah, okay. he proposes to Raina at the end of season two. Yeah, and then well, she's also proposed to Luke at the end of season two. <laughs> yeah, um, Luke Wheeler, who will be like I guess our Kenny Chesney sort of person. Um, I'm not gonna lie, like season two is definitely like when I check out of the show because like there's there's too many inconsistencies like for me to be invested in any of it. Um, there are too many things that like don't make sense to me as a viewer that I was just like, okay, I guess this is just a thing that we're doing. It's season one, but like on overdrive. So like I said, they, they do these things that like are inconsistent. I mean, it is great to see Oliver Hudson. Oliver Hudson is uh, the Jeff Fordham character. Um, Oliver, Oliver Hudson is, and he always gives a great performance in whatever he's in. He always sells it. So that's nice. Like, I'm not like, per, like I said, I'm not particularly, cause I'm just like, what, None of this makes sense. But I guess some, like, moments that I really liked or was like, oh, that's yikes, was, uh, okay, so there's, like, a, there's a plot where, like, Scarlet, so something that does happen that feels consistent um, is that, like, Scarlet has this sort of, like, breakdown. Scarlet has, like, this mental breakdown um, through the course of season two of just sort of due to the rigors of just being an artist. And that's interesting. It's interesting to watch it play out because one of the big things is that Highway 65 isn't like completely independent yet. It's it's like, it's a subsidiary of Edge Hill when Raina first starts it. So uh, initially Jeff like is in charge of Scarlet as like a solo artist and like sort of, 
getting her ready and like putting her in front of people and all this stuff. And and so Scarlett like goes to like media training. Um, They set her up to like be media trained and she's not taking to it super well and she can't get it right. And Jeff is like really mean to her. Don't get me wrong. Jeff is like a total ass, but he is like right in the sense of like, he does tell her like she needs to like pull it together and then, like, obviously, like, when Marina finds out, like, she's like, how dare you talk to my artist that way or whatever. But, like, but the difference is that, like, Raina doesn't do Scarlett any favors by not being, I think, as honest with her, but, like, in a more, gen- in a gentler way. Yeah, I agree with that. Um, Scarlett is someone who, and I think this is what made her character so annoying, too, um, from the very first time she's introduced, uh, like, if I had to describe her character in one word, it would be fragile. Like Scarlett is is someone who is too fragile for X Y Z and needs to be protected or need her ha- needs her hand held at all times. I don't think it's a coincidence that they chose someone who was like obscenely blonde for this role either, um, and to try to push that that feeling of delicacy about Scarlett and. You know, like Alex said, she feels the weight of being a solo artist, the weight of her abusive mother, Beverly, who's back in her life in this season, as well as Gunnar and Zoe's relationship, which she's, she says she's okay with, but she's really fucking not. And that she collapses under the weight of all of this. And if it were anybody else, I feel like even if it was a Juliet, for example, people would just talk about, you know, talk about it as old Juliet being Juliet. That girl's always acting out. But because it's Scarlet, it's like, oh, my God, poor baby. She couldn't handle it. Let's help her. And it's it's really kind of gross to see the ways in which Scarlet is given a sort of presumption of innocence and presumption of well-meaning and a helping hand at all times when a character like, say, Juliet or even sometimes Raina need it and don't get it. One of the many factors comes in in this, this breakdown is Liam. Scarlet starts having sex with Liam and Liam gives her like these pills. Um, we don't know what they are. I want to say it's like it's probably like Adderall or like Fennerman or something that's like close to speed, because Scarlet is essentially like really tired and she's breaking under it. And Liam is like, "Oh, take these. It's, it's just like <laughs> Liam is like, it's just like having like three cups of coffee. It's the same thing." Which, oh my god, no. She's taking and she's just like relying on them more and more to sort of like get through everything. She takes the pills, but then like she drinks at the same time, which is like we all know, no, no, that'll really mess you up. All of that culminates in like her her breaking down. And then it's an interesting plot to watch for the sake of just what it is. But then, and this is what I'm saying, like it doesn't make sense because didn't she and Gunner just signed like a publishing deal like in season <laughs> one to write songs and then publish them and get money. So particularly like Gunner who receives like a $400,000 check this season <laughs> for the, from the, from the publishing royalties. I'm just like, wait a second. <laughs> Did you just, what just happened? 
Right, which is why I say that her even signing to Highway 55 was a move born of desperation. Like, she and Gunner had broken up. She just turned down his proposal. Um, and she was honestly right to break up with Gunner because of the shit he was doing at the end of season one um, to try to avenge his dead brother, which is another unnecessary plot line. But, um, um, you know, she I don't think she wanted to be in close quarters with gunner so she was just doing like signing on as a solo artist as something to do but it's like you know like you're you have social anxiety and that you're like shy and awkward and that you like no shade to scarlet but like you literally can't do this alone but she does it anyway and what happens to scarlet is something that a perceptive viewer could have seen coming a mile away Right. Like, I mean, this plot is like super, it's heavy handed, um, which is fine. I think the, I think the, what really annoys me is that like Raina acts like super shocked that like Scarlet broke down, but I'm like, it's sort of your, and, and honestly, like the way with like the way like Raina reacts to it, like being super shocked and like whatever is really why, like, I don't fuck with artist run labels because like it's, I, I actually do like this plot for that one, re- that part for this one reason is because the way Raina reacts to it is so like, is exactly how I think it happens at like labels that are run by like artists. You, when you are like, when you're like running the label and like you have artists, like you cannot yourself be an artist at the same time that you are trying to like run other artists. Like you either have to be, either you either have to find this found be the founder of this label and know that you as an artist are like finished and now you just want to mentor and now you just want to get other artists off the ground or you need to like really have a or you need to just not do it um because (laughs) she should have been checking in with scarlet at a frequency to know that like something was wrong way before the breakdown like way 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 before um but she doesn't because she's she herself is also trying to like launch her own project off of Highway 65. Right. And I mean, I feel like if you if you have any sort of empathy at all, you would be able to see these things in Scarlet. The girl speaks like she's on the verge of tears. You really think that she can stand up in front of a stage of tens of thousands of people and give a performance alone? This is a girl that choked in a recording booth. No, I feel like if they were paying attention to Scarlett's personality at all, this wouldn't have happened. And Raina wouldn't have even offered her to sign with Highway 65. Scarlett is someone who should be a songwriter. And that's no shade to to songwriters. I don't think songwriters are less than. In fact, I think songwriters are necessary for great vocalists who don't have the writing talent themselves. But everybody's not going to be a singer. And that needs to be okay. Gunner got that good $400,000 check. Although... There is, like, a plot where in season two where, like, Gunner writes this, like, really great song. His whole job is to be selling songs to artists. And by this point, I think Will has been signed to Luke Wheeler's label. And Will hears the song that Gunner wrote, and Will is like, oh, God, I want it. Like, I want that song. That's the song that I want. Like, I want to record it. Or no, he hasn't. He's still on Edge Hill. My bad. But like, um, Will is uh, 
is like, oh, I want this song. And then Gunnar acts like such a little, like, annoying person about selling this song to Will. He's like, no, like, Gunnar's like, no, you can't record it. Like, what about me? I'm like, wait a second. Didn't you sign a publishing deal in season one where, like, this is your job? Like, I, I'm just like, there are, like, too many inconsistencies about all of this. Like... I mean, the inconsistency isn't in the writing, it's in the characters themselves. Scarlett signs a deal to be a solo singer, knowing damn well she does not have the constitution to be a solo singer. And Gunner settles, in his mind, settling for a songwriting deal when he knows he wants to be an artist. Like, this is why these two characters keep gravitating to each other, because neither of them really knows what the fuck they want. They're really annoying to watch independently and together. I'm going to be real with you. Um, <laughs> they're just really super annoying. Um, Gunner should have been the one to be, to, to go after, you know, a record label and be an artist because he clearly wants that. He never stopped wanting that. And Scarlett should have been the one at home writing the hit makers and cashing her checks. You don't have to mm-hmm. wait tables anymore, boo, but you can't be on that stage. You can't be on the stage. Right. Um, so then another thing that happens is like Juliet and Avery start dating and, Juliet, in true Juliet fashion, does another thing that, like, really, like, messes up her reputation. And she and Avery co-write this song, Don't Throw Dirt on My Grave Just Yet, which is a great, which is a great song. Um, one of the better songs from this season. And it's a hit. People get really, are really excited about it. The New York Times, like, writes up a thing about it. But she gets dropped from her label. She gets dropped from Edge Hill. Once again, here we go with things that don't make sense to me. So she gets dropped from Edge Hill and she's going around to all the other country labels in Nashville and she can't get signed. But like when she gets dropped from her label, she acts like it is like the most devastating, like that, like it is the most devastating thing in the universe that could ever happen to her. Which like, if you're like, if you're nobody, like if you're, if you're somebody that's like not like famous yet, it is something that is that devastating, right? Lady Gaga talks about how she got dropped from her first label um, initially before she went with Interscope. And like, and when it happened, like she was like inconsolable. But Juliet is somebody who the show's already established. It's like crazy famous, has like these huge hit records already, has a private jet. Like, are you really that devastated about being dropped from a label when you're, when you, can easily probably just go to another one. Like you could go to not, maybe not necessarily like a country label, but like any other bigger like outfit and, and be fine. Well, I, when I think about that, I think about Julia as a person more than as an artist. She's someone that needs a lot of validation to feel okay. Like validation is a series of bombs or band-aids for her and her like deep seated, Um, feelings of inadequacy and insecurity, which are what lead to her cheating on Avery with Jeff. Um, So someone like that being dropped, not being the one to walk away, which she could, because as you said, she's an established artist, but being the one who is walked away from would definitely send someone like her spinning. Um, That actually made sense to me. And I guess like then that's part of like, I guess why like for me, like it didn't hit was that she then... She then gets picked up for by a major, major producer. Like, and this is another thing that like the inconsistency in the show. There is this mega, mega producer out from LA that like calls her and is like, I heard don't 
throw dirt in my graveyard just yet. Amazing. We want to fly you out to LA. We want to do this thing. And then her and Glenn are, which is Juliet's longtime manager, are initially like extremely excited. Excited to a point that I was just like, wait, I don't get it. Because they're like, this is it. Like, this is what we've been waiting for. Like, this is the big, big, big time. Like, you're going to be a household name. You're going to be like it. Like, the fact that this producer wants to produce you is like the biggest deal ever. And I'm like, I thought she was rich. Like, I thought, like, people know her outside of country music. Like, I'm so confused. Like, I've never been more confused in my whole life. And granted, she leaves, but because she wants to stay with Glenn as, like, a manager, and she wants to continue to try to be, like, a respected voice in country music, which that part made sense. But the fact that they're getting so excited, that they're just like, this is it, like... I'm just like, wait a second. If you have a private jet, you're doing, you're, and you're selling out. Because in season one, they established that like Juliet and Reyna, like their joint tour is like selling out like arenas. If you're already selling out arenas and, and like they're selling out arenas like nationwide, if you're already selling out arenas nationwide, if you have $10 million to blow just to blow it, I don't get this disconnect of like, or I don't get this connect of like, this LA producer is like gonna like take you to the top girl. Like that's, that's a storyline for like, like a Layla Grant or like somebody who, or like a Will Lexington or like somebody who's like fledgling, like not for the Juliet Barnes character, which is why I was just like, wait a second, what's going on? Did I miss something? Mm, That's valid. Another character who has a good story, like I mentioned earlier, Will has a really good character arc throughout the season will is dating layla and he ends up proposing to her in this season and they are given a reality show because they are you know those fledgling music those fledgling country artists and their show is kind of reminiscent of like nick lachey and jessica simpson show but with much much more tension this is the season when he actually tells someone because gunner only learned um, that will was gay when will hit on him he tells layla that he's gay and his confession is actually caught on hidden camera which was hard. oh my my like my my stomach dropped when I realized that he was being recorded. That whole scene was done so well. This season, I felt like this season, as inconsistent as it might have been, was still more digestible than season one. It felt like like there were too many other weird things that were happening. Juliet's whole thing didn't make sense for me. It, it felt like they were backtracking or trying to like retcon or like retell a story. Um, William McGinnis shouldn't have been there. Um, Juliet having sex with, like, this British Lord person was, like, dumb. Don't even know what that was about. That felt silly. The Teddy plot continued to to make no, to be also weird and silly. I, I mean, I think the things that stand out as being, like, really interesting and, like, really good was everything, like, the stuff that involved Jet was, like, really great. The stuff with Leela and Will was really great. I didn't like the Scarlet plot the Scarlet breakdown plot, but I thought it made sense. I felt like it was reasonably paced. Um, I also loved Deacon's new girlfriend that he gets. Deacon starts dating a woman who is a lawyer and she is completely secure within herself. She doesn't feel threatened by Reyna. She has things to do and a life to lead. And she does that. And she is basically like everything Deacon like actually needs in his life. 
she knows what she's about. She knows what she wants. She knows she what she doesn't want. Their relationship and like that whole thing is is great to look at. And I like the whole like Deacon forming this relationship with Maddie. That the, that storyline is really wonderful, particularly when Maddie asks him a question about why he wasn't there. Maddie sort of starts to frame it in a way that like Rain is the enemy, and I like that they write it so that Deacon makes it really clear to Maddie that like he was having issues of like with substance abuse and he was like not fit to parent her in any sort of way. Even though like he's hurt by Raina's choice, he when he talks to Maddie, he reinforces Raina's choice. He's like, your mom did the right thing. But that stuff wasn't like enough, at least for me, to to outshine I think the big problems, uh, which was that a lot of this stuff just felt random. Mm-hmm. Um, I kind of wish Amy Sherman Palladino had watched that episode with Luke and Maddie before having Christopher exonerate himself in Gilmore <laughs> Girls A Year in a Life. Um, but yeah, what do we think of season two? Is it good, bad, or basic? I like, I think I'm giving it, uh, I'm definitely between bad and basic. I think I'll give it like a, a basic. I mean, I gave season one on the low side of good, so I'll give season two like. The high side of basic, I guess. <laughs> oh. <laughs> oh, <God. laughs> side of basic, I hate it. Um, so yeah, um, yeah. So season two ends with Juliet experiencing, I guess, like the fallout of this thing. Also, there's like a whole at the end of season two. There's like a whole thing where um. Michelle Obama comes to talk to the troops. <laughs> it's silly. <laughs> I forgot it happened completely. Also, Deacon declaring to Raina that like he wants to seriously be in Maddie's life and, and be a good dad to her. Season three picks up with with Will like promoting this album and this album being successful, and and Raina is deep in with Luke Wheeler and. And Avery and, and Juliet, of course, have issues like they always do. One of the great things that happened in season two was that Raina released Scarlet from her contract, which was excellent for everyone involved. Um, but Raina, like, I guess this is their way of giving the Raina character drama. Luke proposes and she accepts. Deacon proposes also with a ring and she don't know what to do. But she decides in season three that she's going to go with Luke because it's Raina and she's always made the choice of the dependable man. She married Teddy over Deacon because she could count on him as a partner and a co-parent. Um, you know, Scarlett is planning to go back to Mississippi in season three. And Julia is auditioning to play Patsy Cline in a movie. She's still dealing with the heartache of her breakup with Avery. And one of the best scenes in this season, in my opinion, is when she's auditioning. And she auditions with one of, well, not one of, Patsy's greatest hit, Crazy. And she's still processing this breakup with Avery. And she is crying. And these tears are just rolling beautifully down her face as she's auditioning. And you can just tell from the way the casting directors are looking at her, she got it. The role is hers. <laughs> um, so, you know, she's actually being productive post-breakup. It's interesting with Juliet. She's someone who's actually most productive when she's unhappy and eager to prove herself. When she 
actually gets what she wants, she kind of goes into sabotage mode. There's truly a cycle of self-destruction within this character that presents itself each and every season, despite whatever growth and whatever hurdles she has made. Yes, absolutely. Yeah, and then also something that happens in season three is Juliet finds out she's ego prego with um, Avery's baby. Yeah, you could have heard a pin drop when the doctor told her um, how far along she was because obviously since she fucked Jeff, there was a chance that baby was his. But thankfully she was so far enough along that she knew the baby was Avery's. Thank you writers for not making that Jeff's baby because we didn't really need that type of drama. (laughs) I'm sure like, and I'm sure somebody was like, no, it has to be Jeff's. And then somebody else was like, somebody else talked somebody else like into reason. Um, reason and, and 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 thinking. Um, so one of the things that I do really like about that I think Nashville does well to sell this story and and be really great is, and it's probably because Nashville aired on ABC, which ABC is like is parents' company is like Disney and Disney owns everything. Is that like um, it's great that they do sort of get Raina. Raina and all these art, other artists, like, because the show grounds itself in the real world. Because they do mention other, like, real working artists. Like, oh, Julie, but if Juliet keeps going like this, she'll end up like Taylor Swift. So, like, you do, these people are, like, they ground them in the real world. But they're able to, one thing that's great is, like, they, first of all, all the guest stars. Um, Brad Paisley is, like, in season one. And in season three, Raina, like, is performing on, like, Good Morning America, like, summer concert series, which is cool. And, like, there's, in, like, in previous seasons, she sits down with, like, Katie Couric. And, like, when the whole Maddie Deacon, Maddie Deacon thing is, like, revealed or whatever, Teddy Deacon and Raina all go on, like, Good Morning America to, like, spill their guts about, like, the whole situation. But I was like, um... If you're a real star, like on this caliber, you're spilling your guts to Oprah Winfrey and nobody else. That's the only thing that like got me. I was like, you're not, you're not telling Robin Roberts your business. Like, no, no, you're, it's Oprah or or nobody, but I guess like Oprah can make herself available. I do like that. I do think that's something that the show gets right and does really well. Mm. Um, yeah, I, um, yeah, the 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 Good Morning America plot was was pretty well integrated because that's where most white celebrities go, um, especially if they're in the tabloids anyway. So that didn't bother me at all. Um, what what kind of bothered me was um, Juliet getting pregnant, telling Raina, Glenn, and Emily she signed to Highway sixty five by now, um, and then she <laughs> she texts Avery, and I'm like. There are certain things that you don't tell someone via text. Um, but Avery, to his credit, cleans up his act because he's been drinking heavily since their breakup. And he really wants to, like, be there for her. A wholly unnecessary plot, however, is Gunner's son, Micah, or presumed initially son, Micah. Um, his ex, Kylie, comes back into his life trying to get away from her abusive husband and um, brings him a boy whom she says is his son. Um, And Micah and Kylie serve the purpose of driving a wedge between Gunner and Zoe, who are still going strong and no other purpose whatsoever. 
Yeah, it's like the writers were like, you get a baby, you get a baby, you get a baby. Everybody <laughs> has a baby. Um, <laughs> shout out to Alexa Vega, though. Uh, that she, Alexa Vega plays Kylie um, of Spy Kids fame. She looks great. She looks really, like she suns regularly. So good for her. Right. And I mean... Th- this, like I said, this plot was so unnecessary because it. Well, they were only trying to drive a wedge between Zoe and Gunner, who has issues with him having like an eight-year-old son all of a sudden. Um, and then later, like we have to go back to Gunner's brother, a character whom was killed in season one, and Gunner had been off the rails for some time. When we learn that Micah's not his son because his brother Jason had raped Kylie, um, was. Was any of this really necessary to further the plot of Gunner, the character? Because I really don't think so. It wasn't. It was just, it just felt like stuff. Like, I don't know. And listen, so, so something that was like a thing was that like Zoe, the actress who plays Zoe and like, what's his, like Sam Palladino? Uh, Palladio. Oh, Palladio. Uh, Sam Palladio and the actress who plays Zoe were dating in real life. So I don't know if it was like they broke up <laughs> and they were looking for a way. And he was like, yeah, like we, she's got to go. And they were looking for a way to like kick Zoe off the show. I, I, I don't know. But it was I, I that's my only sort of that's my speculative thing. I'm like that. That must be the reason. Because otherwise, like, what was the purpose? <laughs> Yeah. Um so it's interesting to me because I never I I I knew that they were dating in real life but I didn't consider that they had broken up. When I saw this Kylie plot happening and the wedge being put in between Gunner and Zoe, all I could think is this show is trying to set us up for a, another whack um Gunner and Scarlet reconciliation. And I'm like, they just want him to be boring so bad. He's so interesting when he's not with Scarlett. Yeah, he feels like um, like he's doing something when, when he's not with Scarlett. But alas. Um, <laughs> also, Avery. Yeah, Avery cleans up his act because he's been he has not been good. Uh, granted, he's like very firm that like he's only there to be there for the baby. Yeah, she has her daughter, Cadence. And she starts suffering from postpartum depression, but she's in denial about it. So she doesn't really let anyone help her. Like, And she starts acting out in like the weirdest ways. Like, She fires Glenn, who's been OG ride or die, discovered her at a county fair when she was 12. And pretty much the only man um, who's never done her wrong or taken advantage of her in any way. She signs to Luke's label, even though she's still signed with Highway 65. <laughs> right sis and poor avery like avery does all the things that like you're supposed to do like avery goes to like the therapist and he's like she's gone like she's it's it's breaking down like i have no clue where she is and the therapist is like girl avery girl like all you can do is what you're gonna do you know all you can do is like protect your child and and that's it and you know i guess avery's trying to live with that but it's not I don't know. He's not, it's just none of it's going well. It's all just like, mm. it's all going downhill. Also, Deacon has to um, get like a, he has like cirrhosis of the liver because duh. And he has to give a, get a liver transplant and he gets it from 
from Scarlett's mom. We learn why Beverly and Deacon are the way they are because we learn that their father was also an alcoholic and he was physically abusive to both them and their mother. And we also learn the backstory of why Deacon is like, you know, country famous and Beverly never really made it. When they both had a chance to go on tour with Raina, um, which is how his career started as a touring musician, she stayed behind for some loser that she was in love with. And then she got pregnant with Scarlett later. And by the time she was trying to to like really make it like and was serious about it, it was too late because she was in a shitty relationship with an, a man just as abusive as their father. And she had a kid to take care of. So we kind of see how her resentments about her, you know, the track her life has taken, her family, the fact that her brother made it and she didn't, how all of these manifested in the way that she raised Scarlett. So I felt like season three humanized Beverly and um, Deacon to a great extent. So in season three, Raina and Luke are getting married and Luke sort of like hits her with the prenup, right? And Raina's like, what do you mean we're signing a prenup? And I was like, bitch, are you dumb? Like, girl, <laughs> you have access. I was like, like you, you are really dumb, for real. For real. <laughs> like, um, I was like, you have assets, honey. Like, you have a lot of money and you have a lot of assets. Like, of course you need a prenup. In fact, you should be so glad that, like, he, that he is, like, with it as well. <laughs> like... You've got to protect yourself. Like, and she, but she's like, I just was like, wanted to be in love. And like, I didn't realize I had to like sign like a prenup or whatever. And I was like, like what? Like, I mean, have you been hitting the bottle with Deacon? Like what's going on? Like, what's the situation? The whole thing was incredibly crazy. And like the reason why that plot didn't make sense to me is not even because they're both wealthy, because I've seen, like, wealthy people get married and not sign a prenup. It's because y'all motherfuckers are old, and you've both been divorced before. It's time to get the stars out of your eyes. Like, you've been married and divorced, and you have two kids. He's been married and divorced, and he's got a kid as well. Your assets are with it, like, fluctuate between a couple million dollars of each other. Um, there's a periods where he probably has more money, and then periods where she's got more money. This is about protecting your, your assets for your children, first and foremost, and not being naive enough to think that marriage lasts forever since, again, you've both been divorced already. Exactly. And it's like, you know, cult who is Luke's son, seems like a little shit. Like, do you want Colt, when he's older, to be contesting, like, to be contesting shit so that, like, he owns Highway 65 and Luke's label? Like... Right. um, And, uh, yeah, what happens if, like, Luke dies in that marriage, right? Like, if he's not protecting his son, you can't, like, you can't just assume that your partner is going to have your children's best interests at heart when you pass, Right. Like, so and like, what what would happen to Maddie and Daphne if something happened to her? Like, prenups are about protection. Right. Because Teddy's in jail by now. Teddy's going right. to prison. Teddy's in prison. So like, he does not. He cannot like, um, do what needs to be done. And so I was just like, ugh, that's dumb. And I was like, ugh, yikes. Um. Oh, there's also this magical Negro plot in season three. With Scarlet and this homeless black man that is, like, super cringe that I wish they had just left out. 
Yeah, I blocked that out, so I don't have anything to say on it. <laughs> I was just like, this is terrible. Block. I just, I wish this had never happened. Like, um, I, just, I just put up a Negro defense filter and kept it moving. <laughs> kept it moving. Uh, but things that, okay, so things, nice things that I have to say about season three, because I, I always try to find something nice, is that <clears throat> I liked Derek Ho, like Huff. I don't know. Julianne Huff? Julianne Ho? I don't know. I don't remember. I, I can't pronounce these people's names. Derek Huff, who was on Dancing with the Stars, was like acting and he didn't do a bad job. He didn't suck. I believed him um, <laughs> as an actor. Uh, he plays Juliet's love interest um, while she's filming that Patsy Cline movie and, and he becomes love interest. And He's perfectly fine on screen. He's got a nice presence. I wouldn't mind seeing him in more stuff. Yeah, I liked him a lot, too. And I, I felt like they had good chemistry together as working actors. They have this really sweet moment when they're filming a love scene and he touches her stomach when they're in the bed together. And, like, the way the blanket is placed, the camera doesn't really see it. But by by touching her, like, you know the difference between, like, a big stomach and, like, a pregnant stomach. And he realizes she's pregnant, but he's a gentleman about it and doesn't say anything and, like, keeps that shit to himself. Right. He's He's a real one. He keeps... His, his stuff locked up. Also, another thing I like about this season is I really like Glenn's wigs. I think they're doing a really good job with mm. Glenn's, like, I hair thought it was pieces. hair plugs. I, ne- I never know. I thought Glenn got hair plugs because it was looking real nice in season three, for real. It, it was. It was looking very nice. I really appreciated it. So, like, shout out to uh, hair, makeup, wardrobe. You guys, you guys did it with Glenn's little hair pieces. He looks really nice. I do think the color is a bit too light sometimes. Mm. But other than that, that's what's up. I really love Glenn and Juliet's relationship, by the way. It's it's very it's very paternal. Um, they kind of remind me it of um of um a Giles and Buffy if Buffy had many more psychological issues and unresolved trauma. Glenn is a real one. Glenn is always there for her. Um Glenn is the closest thing she had to a father since her father died when she was like three or four years old. Um right. the the Glenn character is is consistently the only person who doesn't get on my fucking nerves on this show. <laughs> like actually though. Glenn and Buffy probably the only ones. <laughs> Um, they're, for, they're, they're real writers for real they, like Bucky goes so hard for Reyna and Glenn goes so hard for Julia and I love to see it like, and I love it I'm glad that this show left behind the sleazy manager storylines even when Jeff starts dating Layla which happens in this season it doesn't feel sleazy it doesn't feel like he's using her it doesn't feel like oh. he's trying to leverage sex to help her career um, that's true it is toxic but you do it in you i think you do get the sense that he he does care for her genuinely right and i also get the sense that jeff every relationship jeff has ever been in is toxic <laughs> there's that <laughs> um yeah so yeah jeff's uh yeah so layla and jeff layla and jeff is like well first of all layla had just been already like season three is is rough because i i already feel like layla's just been on the show for too long it's been on for two like two seasons too long but they put layla and jeff together and i'm like okay well this is semi-interesting but it's interesting because um it's interesting to watch because like jeff becomes layla's manager because by in season three throughout the course of season two and season three a bunch of stuff happens and like he's fired from edge hill 
watching their relationship is just like weird because um he because Layla then signs gets herself signed to like Highway 65 and Jeff is managing her career but like we said Bucky is also somebody is also somebody that like works at Highway 65 and like is helping all these other artists and there's a scene where Raina and Bucky are looking at Jeff's contract that he's had Layla sign and they read it and they're like, and there's basically, there's a lot of stuff in it where like Jeff essentially like owns her masters and basically like Layla can't breathe unless Jeff says she's allowed to. And Bucky and Raina call Layla to be like, Hey, we were looking at your contract. There's a bunch of stuff in here that seems kind of sketch come over and like, let's talk about it. And Jeff like deletes the message. <laughs> like when, when she, when it comes on her phone, Jeff like deletes it. Um, so like that is like, so that whole in- relationship is like interesting. Cause it's like, he's work he, he, to his credit, like he works really hard on her behalf, but there's also like a, a, a very dark undercurrent there. So that's, 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 what, that's why that plot is interesting. Yeah, for sure. Like, it never feels like he's like, you know, using her body or trying to exploit her, you know, to an audience, but he does clearly want to be in control of her money, which is the Jeff character from Jump. This is who he's always been even before he wasn't before he was sleeping with Layla. When he was Edge Hill CEO, he was always a numbers man. And now that he's fallen, he's like clinging to this artist who he really didn't believe in before, but he saw her perform in public and saw how much better her music is when, like, she can kind of do her own thing. And he realized that, you know, Layla's a cash cow and he's kind of been sleeping on it. But he actually does get to know her as a person and, like, you know, actually likes her and actually has feelings for her. So that dynamic was really, really cool because even though Jeff is not trying to exchange, like, being her manager for sexual favors, it's still pretty much a cautionary tale of you shouldn't... Sh- you know, shit where you work, like, don't sleep with your managers, girls. Like if you learn anything from any of these shows, don't sleep with your managers. Yeah. And, and be, and make sure that you're at the forefront of like your business decisions. Cause like, even then, like, I think there's a a place in season three, Layla asks him like, what about this and this in terms of money? And he's like, Oh, don't worry about that. You know, that I handled the business. I'm like, yikes. I'm like, but she should know. She should be aware. A manager. A manager is not a substitute for an entertainment lawyer. Get you one. <laughs> that's <laughs> all I'm going to say. That's real. And he does have like a definitely like a, a huge influence over Layla because even when Layla's recording music, when Layla records and, and presents it to Reyna, Layla's like, okay, well, this is something Jeff and I are really happy about. And and Reyna's like, okay, but like, this is what I hear. And like, I want to work with you. I, I want to help, help it get better. She's essentially like, you know, I think the closest you can, I think the relationship you can compare it to is uh, the relationship between a writer and an editor. You know, your editor is like, okay, well, like, what about this? Let's think about this. What about this this section? Like, let's try to improve it. Um, and she is like, she's like, well, Jeff said, and Jeff said, and Jeff said, and Raina's like, okay, but you though, do you have thoughts <laughs> on uh, for, for yourself? Um and watching that and sort of watching how you can get into a real relationship and, and sort of have a partner brainwash you without like even you yourself realizing it 
is a very it was an interesting story for for them to to take. They don't ever. So the thing about Nashville is like Nashville doesn't ever fully realize anything, um, but it is. But like that sort of moment is, is cool. Right. I feel like this was also like the first time that the Layla character had been interesting, because Layla with Will knew that something was deeply wrong. I think she knew he was gay before she said it because she knew that something was wrong in their relationship, especially after he proposed and they started living together. She's kind of reduced to this very pathetic character, first being lied to and being played to cover up this man's secret, and then later this like fallen artist who no one really is fucking with and no one really cares about her career. And, you know, the situation with Jeff and then signing to Highway 65 is when her character gets some real oomph because she was like, she was like a down on her luck version of Scarlet for most of season one and two. Right. And, and, and the reason why I say that I thought like Lily, Layla was like a Kelly Pickler is like Layla also, when she gets introduced into Nashville is like, she's coming off a reality competition. Right. Right. She had just won a reality show and then she realized to her Dutch. And I thought that was a really great um, thing too, that the show didn't explore. She thought that this reality show had set her up when really it had just made her a joke. And this is something that you see in reality shows about everything voice, um, even like shows like ANTM, the girls that won America's next top model. Um, they're not really booking like that. Um, right. Except maybe one or one or two. two. Right. And those um, are the, those are usually like the Juliets of the world, right. Who have enough like smart and savvy to like right. like spin it into something different. Right. And like American auto winners, like um hell, some of the winners have been surpassed by the people who were runner up, right? Um right. and it's the like Clay Aiken is is surpassed by Ruben Studdard. I, I think the most successful of American Idol winners who still have successful careers are Kelly Clarkson and Fantasia Barino. Um right. that's pretty much it. Like and, and Carrie Underwood. I think Carrie Underwood won. I, I had stopped watching by that. I honestly don't know. But yeah, Carrie Underwood counts. She was on the show, so um, it counts regardless. But when you think about the vo- the sheer volume of people who were on that show and made it to the top three, how many of them actually have successful careers right now? Like, I'll wait. Let me play the Jeopardy music. Because <laughs> they, they don't. And Layla fell into that, basically. Um, she charmed America um, with her personality. She won that show off her talent and, you know, the strength of audience members liking her. But she couldn't translate that into a real career. The show could have done such a better job by actually focusing on her, like, her swallowing this bitter pill trying to market herself differently, becoming like an indie artist who then becomes, who gets signed by one of these records because of the strength of her, her self-promotion. But it didn't really go that way. She just was Will's beard for a little while, and then she became Jeff's project. Right, which sucks. Um, yeah. Yeah, um, yeah, because she and and it's it's bad because she initially like sells Will on doing the reality show at first to do exactly what you just said to like try to like hustle to like make it something different, which is what I think a lot of people do, but is never like the the right move um, initially. And also, it's and and in fact the the. Even the whole like Will Layla reality plot and and it being bad for for 
for Layla's career, that part of the show of Nashville felt dated. Um, there are lots of parts of Nashville that feel dated. Um, the Katie Couric and the extra stuff feel like when like people are talking about them on Katie Couric or like if people are talking about them on extra, or, like some other like TV tabloid thing felt dated. Um, also, in the early, in like season one or season two, they, there's like a brief mention of Twitter, but it's like never brought up again. Um, right. Uh, and then, oh, and yeah, and then the reality show being a hindrance felt dated because like now we know that that's not the case. Like, and it's and, and that's also part of what makes Nash- Nashville like an interesting cultural artifact. Because I mean, this show only ended in 2015. Um, it's amazing to see how just. Um, in four years, in in just four years, the landscape um, is so rapidly changed. You know what I mean? Um, right. And this is what I said earlier when I compared their reality show to Nick Lachey and Jessica Simpson's reality show, because that's exactly what it felt like. Like, y'all got on a reality show. Um, it was awkward. You humiliated yourselves, and neither of your careers ever recovered from it. That is Will and Layla's reality show. That is not. Right. It's, they're not. It's not the modern day reality shows where you can literally springboard that into a legitimate enterprise or at least a career as a quote unquote influencer. <laughs> right? Because like now, because now you have people who who garner and like and like you said, they launch legitimate careers. Um, uh, and it's not even from the singing competition shows. Singing competition shows nowadays are are just that singing competition shows. Um, <laughs> if you want to launch your music career, you do like you do eleven hip hop. You know, you do a Real Housewives. You you do one of those because those can. Um, you do like. Um, well, this is old. I think this is a bit. Prob- this is probably more dated, but. Uh, but, right, and this show came out in 2011, and it was like you know, hearkening back to that Nick Lachey, Jessica Simpson reality show from like what 2005. Um. Anyway, so season three ends with oh, also Christina Aguilera shows up randomly this season. That's cool, I guess. Except she's not playing herself. She's not playing she's herself. Make, she's playing like a popular musician who's basically Christina Aguilera, but doesn't have Christina Aguilera's name. Like it's so weird because like we have like. We have Trisha Yearwood, Carrie Underwood as herself, Brad Paisley, Joe Nickel, Florida Georgia Line, Sarah Evans. We even have um, um, Tracy Edmonds, um, um, ex-wife of um, Kenneth Babyface Edmonds, all appear on the show as themselves. And I'm just like, I don't know. It's a good question. I, I, don't, I don't know. I don't know what would be like the issue. So, so season three ends with Juliet sort of like walking out on Avery. Yeah, she walks out on Avery and the baby because she's like, I'm over this shit. And well not she's over it. She's just she's just going through a really hard time. She thinks the distance will make it better. Beverly ends up in a coma after the liver transplant because um something has gone horribly wrong. There's been a complication. It's just a complication. Will is trying to to finally date this dude. And Scarlet and freaking Gunner get back together for like the billionth time. Ugh, whatever. 
Right. Will is forced out of the closet after tabloids get pictures of him and Kevin. And instead of denying the allegations like he always has, he finally comes clean. Julia checks out on Avery, not for the last time. Season three actually ends. They don't tell us what has happened to Deacon or Beverly. The doctor says that someone flatlined during the operation and they give us this major cliffhanger to basically get us to tune into the season four premiere. <laughs> um, right. <laughs> which is, um, it's juvenile, but it works because I was there ready to watch season four. <laughs> oh, season three. Season three, good, bad, basic. Season three was... I'm going to say it's better. It's better than the last two. <laughs> yeah, I get it's a, it's basic plus for me. <laughs> oh my god. Basic plus like it's a like it's a type of cable. <laughs> In 1995 we had basic plus cable. It's pretty much what it is. There were lots of unnecessary plots like Colt and Luke's son Maddie started dating after their parents broke up. Why was why does Colt need to be here? Like shout out to the actor who played Colt. I'm sure his role as Colt is what got him cast as Daniel on Euphoria later on. But, like, why are you here, though? I'm glad he's playing a character that semi-serves a purpose on Euphoria, though he's pretty forgettable on that show as well. Teddy getting arrested for not turning in Raina's sister. Tandy was gallant, except he was just as guilty as Tandy, so it's not like he was, like, taking the fall for her. He just got extra time because he didn't rat her out. Right. Like I said, season season three for me was like, eh, that happened. In one sense, I think it's more season three is more cohesive, but like then it's it's boring. So I don't I don't or like it's it doesn't. That's exactly what it is. <laughs> like so, it is more cohesive but boring. And I don't think it's boring because like it is legitimately boring. I think it's boring because one they ran out of story because they did it all in season one and season two, and then. Uh, to it's I think it's also it's still not paced well the will coming out plot was also like I felt it was one of those things where like in season one and two they rushed through things and this is something that they stretch out that I didn't feel needed to be stretched out we've been dealing with Luke's shame or we've been dealing with Will's shame of being gay for a really long time um, sorry, I keep calling him Luke, you guys. That's the character Chris Carmack played on the OC. <laughs> Same. I always um, want to call him Luke. Drawing it out further where we, like, we, we see the shame that he had with his father and with his mother. I felt that that was all wholly unnecessary, especially when we end season two with that secret confession. Like, him being forced out of the closet should have been wrapped up by season, by episode three of season three. Right. And that's, that's fair. And there you have it, folks. This is everything that we think made the first three seasons of Nashville good, bad, basic, and uh, for the most part, entertaining. If you'd like to watch or relive this series, Nashville is currently streaming on Hulu. ABC might not have been the best home for Nashville in those early seasons, but the concept was unlike anything the network had done in years, and the series was easily the most original show on ABC at the time, for better or for worse. Tune in next week when Em and I will be recapping seasons four through six of Nashville. Until then, our top tier patrons can tune in to our next movie review of 1994's The Swan Princess. The episode goes live this Saturday. In the meantime, if you'd like to watch or relive this film, The Swan Princess is currently streaming on Hulu. Follow The Good, The Bad, The Basic on all major podcast platforms to listen to all of our regular weekly episodes on the go. If you love this sort of content and want more, 
Consider becoming a show producer and patron on Patreon. You can find us at patreon.com forward slash good bad basic. Your support allows us to keep bringing you our regular weekly episodes as well as exclusive bonus material. Be sure to follow us at good bad basic pod on Twitter. And of course, follow our SoundCloud page, the good, the bad, the basic, where all of our social media links are listed until next time. Bye everyone. Bye everyone.